Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call. They'd write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of the guy who used to be president to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. And the logical fallacy we're looking at this week is the ambiguity fallacy, also known as vagueness and amphiboly. Well, I say we, but I'm going to have to leave you in the capable hands of Jim flying solo, with the help from one or two others in a have-I-got-news-for-you kind of way for the next several episodes. The work I'm currently doing means there'd be a conflict of policies in doing this, especially at the moment. But I'll be back to join in the fun again when this period is over. Meanwhile, I'll hand you back over to Jim, who will explain the ambiguity fallacy. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately I am on my own, and uh, I've got to explain this and talk about it all by myself. But the ambiguity fallacy is uh, essentially when someone is being deliberately vague in order to obscure a point or to make a point uh, as part of their argument. And they're using, usually it's about ambiguous wording, can be grammar, but it's um, using something that can mean what they want it to mean while at the same time appearing to mean something else. So for our Trump example this week is a clip from Fox and Friends when Donald Trump called in and was being asked about his views on how exactly schools should open. What is the the latest on your view of how these schools should reopen? My view is the schools should open. This thing's going away. It will go away like things go away. And my view is that schools should be open. So his view of how schools should be open is that schools should be open. But the vagueness comes in when he just says it's it's going away like things go away. And the things, in this case, he's talking about the coronavirus and he has said in a number of interviews and uh, speeches and press conferences and things that it will just go away. It'll go away one day like magic and he said it'll go away even if we don't have a vaccine. And the beauty of being as vague as this without having any kind of time frame on it, he's not saying it'll go away this year, it'll be, you know, we'll be all back to normal. I would point out that sometimes he has suggested time frames and they've been nonsense. But in this kind of instance, he is talking about uh, just it going away. And yeah, arguably, it will go away eventually, even if we didn't have a vaccine. I mean, humanity will go away eventually. If you if you don't specify a period of time, then you can even say it'll go away in an amount of weeks or months because 50 years is an amount of weeks if you're not being specific or even trying to, to indicate what kind of time frame you're looking at. So by using such a vague phrase and just skirting straight past the how schools should open... Uh, Trump is is essentially being ambiguous for the purpose of making his point and and um, avoiding having to answer the question. Our second Trump example comes from a tweet by Donald Trump Jr. Actually, it's a um, well, it's a quote retweet of a list of the Wisconsin voter turnouts by year that was quoted by someone called Harlan Z Hill, and uh, he's made a list of 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016, 2020. And uh, each um, percentage, as it goes up, is in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So the lowest voter turnout was in 2000, it was 67.01%, and the highest was in 2004, it was 73.24%. And 2020's number is 89.25%. He says, totally believable, lol, 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 they're stealing this. And Donald Trump Jr. has retweeted this and says, I'm calling bullshit. So their claim here is that Wisconsin voters have turned out so ridiculously more this this year that it must be stealing the election. It must be vote rigging or something um, illicit. Now, voter turnout is up around the country. 
it's not typically up by around 20%. So this isn't um, realistic, really. Uh, it's possible. But in fact, what they've done here, what Harlan Z. Hill has done and what Donald Trump Jr. has just retweeted is um, a, an ambiguous use of the term turnout. Because what the figures have done is um, they have used the number of people voted as a percentage of eligible voters for all of the years up to 2016. But then in 2020, they've used a percentage of people who voted as a percentage of registered voters. And Wisconsin is a, um, a an election day registration state, so you can go along to the ballots and register on the day and then vote. So, so because of that, they don't typically use uh, the percentage of registered voters um, as their turnout figure. They use the percentage of eligible voters. And that's why it's in the late 60s, early 70s. And in fact, in 2020, if you use that number, the number is 72.3%. So that's exactly in the ballpark that you would expect it to be in if you looked at the, the figures and compared them all legitimately. So they're doing both a, an inconsistent comparison there um, and also the ambiguity fallacy by just using the word turnout which can mean different things, and they're using it in different ways in the same table of figures. And my final example in this section, and I think actually the best example I've found of this fallacy, and in fact it's the reason why I decided to do this fallacy, was a tweet from Charlie Kirk, the improbably small-faced head of Turning Point USA. He uh, tweeted... And this, he's done this several times and done several variations of this tweet. But in May, he tweeted, If masks work, why are states forcing some businesses to stay closed? If masks don't work, why are states forcing people to wear them? So it's the old anti-mask rhetoric and, and claiming that because masks aren't the only thing that the government is asking people to do or that the state is asking people to do then obviously they don't work because if they did you wouldn't need to take any other measures you wouldn't need to close businesses or or do social distancing or any of the other stuff and what he's doing here is using the word work in a very ambiguous way because masks do work and the the measure of success of a mask is that it reduces the likelihood that the virus will spread. And the more people who wear masks um, more frequently, more consistently and more effectively, the more the spread of the virus uh, will be reduced. If you're implying, as Charlie Kirk is here, that work is an either-or thing, a black-and-white fallacy is also being committed here, then... Uh, you can't say masks work because they don't completely stop the virus. They don't, you know, then they're not all you need. Social distancing isn't all you need. Hand washing isn't all you need. None of these precautions that people are being asked to take are in and of themselves going to stop a virus of this kind. That's not possible using any individual thing. But no one's claiming that. No one is claiming that, that if everyone wore a mask and we didn't do anything else, everything would be fine. Um, so why, when Charlie Kirk is saying if masks don't work, why are states forcing people to wear them? It's not that they don't work. They work in doing what they're supposed to do, which is reduce the spread of the illness. I actually retweeted Charlie to say, if seatbelts work, why do we still have speed limits? Because it's not about... The, the precaution you take being either all or nothing. And now is the time, I think, for Mark's British Politics Corner. Yes, it's still Mark's British Politics Corner, even though Mark isn't here right now, but I'm going to have to fill in for him. Um, and although I'm a Brit, I don't know as much about British politics as Mark. So, But fortunately, he has uh, slipped me uh, some information behind the scenes to... Um, to help me out in this section. So for our example, for British politics this week, we're looking at the old days when people could meet face-to-face -face in person and spout vagaries to a room full of other politicians worried about the world economy as a cipher for promoting their own reputations. Yes, it's the G7 summit, and it's when uh, Boris Johnson was being 
kind of characteristically vague about uh, all kinds of things, actually. How long a deal uh, with the US might take, uh, whether the chances of a no-deal Brexit were still really, really small, and also uh, whether Boris Johnson was planning on paying, or how much he was paying, of the £39 billion financial settlement that had been agreed with the EU. Um, and the possibility was that if it was a no, if there was a no deal Brexit, then the cash uh, was no longer strictly speaking owed to the EU. So the question was asked by BBC chief political correspondent Vicky Young. You're going to meet Donald Tusk. Are you prepared to say to his face that you're not handing over the billions of pounds that have already been well, agreed? I, you know, I, I, I think he knows that the reality is, if we uh, come out without a deal then clearly the £39 billion is, is, is part of that deal. So and, how much are so, you willing to pay? Any so, of it? Well, uh, what I've said repeatedly is that uh, we will have substantial sums from the £39 billion, a substantial residue. But you will still pay, to, you're willing to pay some, £8 residue, A very substantial residue uh, to pay or for... for uh, whether it's to support our, our rural communities, farming uh, businesses, or uh, all types of investments uh, to get Britain uh, ready for, uh, for the world beyond Brexit. So he clearly doesn't have an answer, which is, I mean, he should by this point have had an answer to this question. And uh, he doesn't, well, the, the main thing he doesn't want to do is, uh, while he's at the G7 specifically, is say, yeah, we're not going to give them any money. That's not happening. So by being vague and by being ambiguous about um, whether the the amount will be very substantial or just kind of an unknown amount that isn't... He isn't even quite saying what he's going to be doing with the substantial money that they'll have. He's he's being totally vague. He's being totally ambiguous and uh, avoiding really the point of the question, but mostly avoiding being tied down. Um, and again, this is a way of, and this is a way of of, of kind of having um, plausible deniability to, to when you are later when someone tries to tie you down, you can say, "Well, I didn't say that. I said nothing of the sort," because actually you didn't say anything clear enough for anyone to actually pin you to. <laughs> The ambiguity, the articles made To try and make the point that's deniable A fallacy in the wild That was Santana with their ambiguous hit, She's Not There. So in the Fallacy in the Wild, we like to talk about the Fallacy of the Week from a non-political perspective. And this week, our first example comes from a classic Simpsons episode called The Day the Violence Died. And it's where Bart tries to hire Lionel Hutz. All right, gentlemen, I'll take your case. But I'm going to have to ask for a thousand dollar retainer. A thousand dollars? But your ad says no money down. Oh, they got this all screwed up. So you don't work on a contingency basis? No, money down. (laughs) So Lionel Hutz is advertising himself using ambiguous wording and punctuation because when he scribbles on the the ad that Bart has brought in, it now has a question mark after contingency and a comma between no and money down. So it did say contingency, no money down, and but that's not what it meant. So essentially he's used this ambiguity to get people into the office uh, and then still ask for money in advance. Uh, it turns out in this case he should have worked on contingency because Chester J. Lampwick uh, won $800 billion in the case. So our second example is from uh, No Country for Old Men and this is a scene where uh, Javier Bardem is in a kind of Texaco station and the, the guy behind the counter tries to make small talk with him and um, and he gets very kind of menacing and quiet and it's it's a bit scary, and and after a little while, the the old man behind the counter um, decides he's kind of he's a little scared and he's had enough. Oh, well, I need to see about closing. See about closing. Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now we close now. No, it's not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark. At dark. You don't know what you're talking about, do you, sir? 
<laughs> so it's it's bright sunlight outside, and when he he's asked what time he closes, in order to avoid that question and still make his point that it's time for him to close now, he he claims that his closing time is now and generally around dark. So he's clearly lying, um, but the ambiguity of his statement allows him to kind of not not make a clear argument and in some way that is something that is a feature of this fallacy is that it's it's a way of avoiding a question it's a way of not um specifying an answer and not kind of tying yourself down gives you plausible deniability if you can claim that your answer that you gave meant what turned out to be the truth or or what people found out later because you were vague enough uh, or ambiguous enough to uh, possibly have meant lots of different things. So we're going we're gonna to play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody. As well as anybody. Yes, it's time for fake news, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up. And in this instance, Rachel has to figure out which one is fake news. Though, of course, the real score is always going to be different, isn't it? That's just how you'll find it is with these kind of things. Yeah. Nice and specific and vague at the same time. So that's good. Um, so, <laughs> so the ones I've chosen this week mm-hmm. and the, the kind of theme this week is on uh, Donald Trump's press conference that he gave a couple of days after the election okay. when it was becoming clear that he probably wasn't winning. And and so obviously the only thing he can do is, is claim that it's not his fault and everyone's out to get him. Indeed. So first quote is, if you count the legal votes... I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly, but a lot of votes came in late. I already decisively won many critical states, including massive victories in Florida, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, to name just a few. We won these and many other victories despite historic election interference from big media, big money, and big tech. Right. Statement number two Yes. is... The level of fraud is unprecedented. I've been saying it for weeks that mail-in ballots are just awful for fraud, and lo and behold, all the mail-in ballots magically have Joe Biden's name on them. It's so one-sided, and there's no explanation for it at all. The Democrats knew they couldn't win this election honestly, so they've done everything they could to steal it from us, but we're not going to let it happen. We have some very smart lawyers working on it. Mm -hmm. And statement number three, we were winning in all the key locations, by a lot actually, and then our numbers started miraculously getting whittled away in secret, and they wouldn't allow legally permissible observers. We went to court in a couple of instances, and we were able to get the observers put in, and when the observers got there, they wanted them 60, 70 feet away, 80 feet, 100 feet away, or outside the building to observe people inside the building, and we won a case, a big case. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So one of those I made up, the other two he said during his press conference full of yes, rants and yes, lies yes. i reckon you made up number two okay <laughs> so which of the other two are you more confident i am very confident he said number one because i think okay. i heard it okay <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm very confident he said number one um okay. uh the last one yeah, I. You know what? You know why I think number two is fake? Because you said because I can't imagine him using the phrase "lo and behold." Ah, okay. but maybe that's maybe that's entirely so fake. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, so uh, you think number one is real, and yes. number one is real. Oh, <gasps> if you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly. But a lot of votes came in late. I've already decisively won many critical states, including massive victories in Florida, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio. To name just a few, we won these and many other victories despite historic election interference from big media, big money and big tech. So that's correct. The It barely needs to be said that there wasn't, or there isn't so far, any proof of any election interference at all from either big money, big media, or big tech. Yes. I'm not quite even sure who big money is. But, yeah, and there's obviously no evidence at all at the moment of any illegal votes. He's talking, or he's trying to suggest that votes that were counted after election night are illegal. Yep. Um, but 
I mean, there there hasn't really ever been an election, as far as I know, that that where all of the votes were counted on election night. That just doesn't happen. There's far too many. Absolutely. And in this kind of situation, there's just so many additional mail-in ballots and things like that. And yeah. it's, uh, it's unprecedented. Uh, yeah, an unprecedented turnout as well. So it was always going to take a bit longer. But yeah, he's leaping on it to say. Um, <laughs> in fact, even if you, even if they did stop counting uh, at the end of election night. Um, he he still lost because the um, Nevada and Arizona were were um, had gone blue by that point, mm. and and so yeah, he'd already not got the uh, enough electoral college votes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. No, number three. I'm just re- rethinking number three <laughs> because um, I don't know if he did. Did he say sixty, seventy, eighty feet away outside? I mean, that's kind of a bit mad. But then we do know he is a bit mad. Um, so I'm wavering. I'll I'll let you change your. But no, I'm still going to say like. no. I'm still going no. I'm still going to say number two is number two is the not real one. Okay, okay. So uh, so you think number three is correct, and number three is real. Yes, yes. Woo! We were winning in all the key locations by a lot, actually, and then our numbers started miraculously getting whittled away in secret. And uh, they wouldn't allow legally permissible observers. We went to court in a couple of instances, and we were able to get the observers put in. And when the observers got there, they wanted them 60, 70 feet away, 80 feet, 100 feet away, or outside the building to observe people inside the building. And we won a case, a big case. So, uh, yeah, he did say that. Well done. It's mad, um, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, it, I mean, again, barely needs saying this isn't true. A lot of people on the right are saying that that no one is allowed in to to watch. You know, they've they've mm. tried. They can't. Mm. They won't let any Republican observers in. It's not true at all. Who the yeah. people they won't let in are randos who turn up with guns uh, outside. Sometimes with guns. Sometimes <laughs> with MAGA hats and just kind of demanding to watch what's going on. That's not how it works. Yep. But there are um, Republican and Democrat observers inside the buildings. Yes, and. Uh, what he's talking about in terms of um, when they did get in there, they've been in there the whole time, mm. that they wanted them to stand so far away, mm. is in Philadelphia they did they were kind of having a rule basically because of COVID that the people were about 25 feet away. Mm -hmm. And the Trump administration took them to court and said they need to be closer. And in, in Pennsylvania they said, okay, yes, you, they can be six feet away. Mm -hmm. Um Actually, they said originally they could be within six feet, and that's what the um, election personnel challenged uh, in right, court and okay. appealed because yeah. within six feet isn't very safe for people at this time. So, um, yeah, that that's why there was a legal challenge. But and they did the the Trump administration won the original case to have them moved closer, mm. but it had nothing to do with being outside of the mm. building yes. or yes. or a hundred feet away yes. or not being allowed in at all. <laughs> well, they have to have bionic eyes. But yeah, I think yeah. I think that you were very kind to me, Jim. I think this is my first time, and I think you did a very obvious one that was fake, even though I wavered somewhat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you did indeed win, so you immediately have have surpassed Mark. You're Most on 100. Most excellent. Uh, so that's very good. Obviously, that yes, the second one was was false. Uh, although it contained some nuggets of things that he said. He did say the Democrats knew they couldn't win this election honestly, or something in, in that region and oh, yes. and obviously has has been talking about mail imbalance mm. um and and he did kind of suggest that it's a mystery why the mail imbalance are favoring the democrats despite the fact he's been telling everyone not to do mail imbaloting mm. for for months mm. and obviously the democrats are less likely to listen to him indeed so that's right yes it's not a mystery <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. I want to, uh, yeah, you can, you can do that to me again. Oh, that sounded slightly rude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I had no clue what I was going to start with at that point. I just, I played the stings and I just panicked. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not a clue. Yeah, it's not a, yeah. <laughs> Which is no way to introduce a fellow podcast that we really like called The Politics Guys. And it's great. You should listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been going for, for quite a while. And it's a, a mix of different um, presenters mm. each week. They don't have the same presenter each time. Uh, but it's always uh, a couple, sometimes three, I think. Right, yeah. Um, with, uh, with, with a mix, most importantly, of uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum both conservative and liberals um, and they're kind of academics they are learned people who know about political science and about logic and stuff like that um, talking about the week in American politics then they also have kind of ordinary people <laughs> there's such a thing as ordinary but like people who aren't academics but you know have their opinions about how politics should be done uh, and how it affects their daily lives. And the thing I really like about the show is that they kind of don't they um, they kind of don't beat a drum for one side or the other. What they do is make a safe space for people to feel comfortable in uh, in being able to share their views. And they hear them out. And basically, the premise is that all Americans are made up of well, they're pretty much decent people who want the best for their own lives and for the country in which they live. And that's the position they're expressing their opinions from. And it's done really well because they are mm -hmm. because there are often times when I'm listening to it and I'm shouting at the radio. <laughs> well, I'm shouting at my car radio when I was listening to it last. And then the guy who's hosting it will just say, "Well, they might correct some factual errors, but yeah. then they go, but then they just go, "Oh, that's really interesting. What do you think?" And you think, "Oh, yeah, that's the position. That's the position." You know, given that we do this show, which is about you know looking at the critical thinking and the logic behind stuff, rather than taking up a position and defending that to the hilt. Well, this is really a good example of how to do that. Yeah, it's really good to kind of get a feeling for part of at least what the, where the other side is coming from, where the where people who think differently from you are basing their opinions on and um, why they hold them and how they back them up. And uh, yeah, it can be forgotten sometimes when we just listen to stuff in our echo chambers that, um, you know, the other the other people aren't necessarily bad or stupid. They're just they have different opinions. They have different, um, you know, input. And um, it's useful to, to look at that and hear where they're coming from and have a kind of robust discussion that isn't based on shouting. Yeah, and I think it's really kind of vital at this moment in time to be able to see the other side and understand where they're coming from and understand where people who don't hold your opinions are, how they're motivated and fundamentally what they maintain is that we're all pretty much the same. We're looking out for our own and how can we contribute to society and how do we live our life under this political umbrella and how do we ensure our rights are upheld? And if you can find that kind of common ground, then there's some hope to get away from the polarising view. Yeah. So you can find the Politics Guys at politicsguys.com. You can search them on uh, where you normally get your podcasts. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at Politics Guys and uh, check them out. We think that's a good podcast. Yeah. So this is the part of the show that this week, at least, is called The Election is Not a Logical Fallacy. Because, uh, I don't know if you heard, but there was a bit of an election. That I happened. heard, yes, there was uh, yeah. quite a big bit and, of an election. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been in the news a little bit. It's important for everyone. It's important, especially for Americans, obviously. It's also important for this podcast because we do focus a little bit on Trump. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's he's out. Um, ding dong, the orange witch is dead. And, um, and Joe Biden is in, or at least will be in January. Yes. But, yeah, we want to talk a little bit about kind of how it all happened and what was going on at mm. the time. And, obviously, people have been saying for a quite a long time, in fact, the polls have been fairly static at Joe Biden was going yep. to win. Yep. And some people have said since that, oh, the polls were totally wrong and, and very bad and they had Joe winning by much more. But in fact, if you look at things like 538, if you look mm. at their final projections, I mean, it's all about probability. And they were saying it looks very likely that Joe's going to win. And mm. here are the states he's going to win. And in mm. fact, they only got um, North Carolina and Florida wrong. All of the others, they called correctly. Ah, I didn't know that. Um, okay. And and they did, yes, get some of the, the kind of amounts that states would be won by wrong. In some cases, they were out by a few percentage points. Yep. But 
you know, that's not very surprising. It's going to happen in, in that case. But actually, 538 did pretty well. They did a, uh, they, they perhaps uh, expressed overconfidence in in their um, thinking beforehand. And people thought, well, you know, it wasn't a landslide. Therefore, the people who were saying Biden was definitely going to win were, were wrong. And I must admit that in the days kind of leading up to the election, I had started to feel quite... Um, optimistic and enthusiastic and thinking, you know, maybe, just maybe it could be a landslide and that would be super cool and it would be a kind of repudiation of the four years of Trump. And so that meant that on election night, I was up all night watching it thinking, yeah, it's not what I was hoping for. Yeah, but... I couldn't I couldn't stay up, although I did wake up a few times in the night and um, check my phone and then yeah. and when Florida had been called... Um, you couldn't sleep after that <laughs> and felt totally depressed on Wednesday. Yeah. And because so many American friends were saying, we're not sure, we're not sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, despite despite 538's work and the fact that it was pretty accurate most of the time. Um, yeah. I just didn't believe it really until uh, Wisconsin and Michigan were called. Yeah. And um, and up to that point, it did feel quite depressing. It yes, felt. Yeah. Uh, I was I was not not depressed because I thought actually maybe he's not going to win. I was still reasonably confident that he was going to win because mm. I could see the paths to victory that mm. he had. Mm. But um, what was depressing me the most at that point was the fact that um, even even then it was like sixty million Americans were still looking at what Trump has done for four years and gone. Yes, we'll have some more of that. Seventy? Oh no, sixty then. Well, yeah, si- sixty yeah, on the day. Yeah. By, yeah, yeah. by now, seventy yeah. million. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty fucking depressing. Yes. I mean, that <laughs> that there are that many people who value what he's putting out there mm. more than mm. their fellow Americans mm. in many cases, mm. and it's really that's kind of scary. And yeah, so even though. I kind of fell into the trap of getting over enthusiastic and kind of maybe thinking there was a possibility of a landslide. Really what happened on election night was what we thought was going to happen. It's what people had been said was going to be. It's what we've been saying on this podcast was going to happen. Yeah, that's true. That there were key states that looked like they were trending towards Trump on election night. Mm. And we knew that it might be a few days after that Mm. that they started to turn blue. Mm. Mm. And and that's exactly what happened. And when they did start to turn blue... That's when we started getting a bit more excited about yes. it. Yes, <laughs> but also what they predicted has also come to pass, which is his um, refusal to accept any oh, yeah. kind of outcome that doesn't favour him, um, and all these crazy lawsuits that are happening. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's ugh, yeah, he's just remarkable. Yeah, and it was on on election night or very late, uh, late on election night that he actually did claim victory, as we said he would. Yes. Um and and since then he said I won and I won big and things like that. I and won big. Obviously, biggie. you know, it's it's just obviously not true. And yes, the the lawsuits are not a surprise at all. In fact, the most recent at at this point episode of opening arguments goes through the lawsuits that the Trump administration have filed. Mm-hmm. Uh not not a huge amount of detail, but mm-hmm. enough to to make it clear that they don't have much mm. chance of mm. doing anything. Mm. Uh, so recommend you that you listen to that. But yeah, they're, they're, they're very specious. And really, to especially at this point, where it's really looking like Biden's going to end up with something around 306, probably, uh, Electoral yes. College votes, yes, which yes, is yes. exactly what Trump got in 2016 ah. and claimed was a landslide. Well, that's the extraordinary thing that um, Biden's going to get a similar score to what he had. Does he not think people actually can see and read history in as much that he got 306 in 2016? And if Biden gets the same in 2020, how is that any different? Yeah, I mean, from what we've seen, he doesn't think that people can see what he did last week. Yes. Because he's fairly open uh, at just... You know, claiming he didn't say things that we all saw him say it's, on camera. You know, it's so bizarre. So. <laughs> and, and, and saying stop the count in one state and, and carry on with the count in another state just because it's not going in his favour or, or, yeah. Yeah, or otherwise. No, that was astonishing. Where at the, yes. Basically at the exact same time in Maricopa County yes. in Arizona, people were saying count the votes because yep, he yep. still needed to, to catch up. And while in, in Pennsylvania, they were, they were saying stop the vote. And, and you can kind of... they've. People have edited them side by side and said, look, yes. this is, these are Trump supporters. It's so bizarre. But there's a question, isn't there, around what is a landslide? So um, 
Biden has obviously got the highest uh, vote in history. Is Did he actually get a bigger margin than... Oh, no, he's got a... So he also has a... No, it's a bigger margin than, than, than Obama had, I think. Is that right? Yeah, he certainly surpassed the vote margin, the popular vote margin between Obama and Mitt Romney for the, Obama's re-election. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a bit, it's a bigger margin than Obama. Um, but what's interesting is that, again, it's like kind of depends on where, which media you look at. So you've got some media who are being really critical and, and actually saying this should have been so easy. This should have been absolutely a walkover and it should have been a landslide. Um, and the Democrats are going to get it really wrong if they take a really centrist path, because actually where the energy is in the in the Democrat Party is with um, the much more progressive agenda. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's really there curious. is an argument for that, definitely. And yeah. a lot of people are trying to make that argument. Um, I think um, it's easy to, to think that possibly if they had Bernie Sanders or if they had Elizabeth Warren or someone like that, then it might have been a, a bigger victory. But if you look at the the state races and mm. the um, the Senate races and, and things like that, the more progressive candidates tended not to do as well. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there's an argument that o- over the last four years, Trump has kind of moved the Overton window to the to the right and and people are seeing politics more in his, through that frame essentially mm. and so progressives tend to start looking more extremist and yes i mean we're reasonably progressive on this podcast <laughs> and and there are um there are a lot of progressives out there who desperately want the politics as a whole and the democrat party to move to the left um i it i don't know it, what reason it is but it seems like the more progressive candidates have done worse in terms of underperforming the polls and underperforming what people thought like for example jamie harrison in mm-hmm. in um uh, south carolina mm-hmm. against lindsey graham mm-hmm. yeah yeah that um, was very he, disappointing yeah it looked like beforehand it looked like that was going to be really mm-hmm. close and the polls were close mm-hmm. and and he he lost by several points and mm-hmm. and that was kind of replicated across the country in various races that mm-hmm. um and, and whereas the more centrist more kind of moderate um, candidates tended to do better, so uh, that maybe is uh, that might not translate mm-hmm. to a a more progressive candidate doing worse, but it might indicate that I don't know, um, and maybe it's just a matter of kind of progressive elections or, or con- con- subsequent elections now yep. needing to move gradually left. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Senate races are obviously quite important as well because even though Biden's in, he can't get anything done if Mitch McConnell is still in charge. But I'm hopeful, so, eh? Because if uh, it looks like well, he's going to take Georgia, and if there's there is, going to be two yeah. two runoffs on the fifth of Jan in, in Georgia, then I would have thought they'd have been in with a good chance. Well, there, um, yeah. I mean, that's that's the opportunity because it's it's now looking very likely that it's going to be forty eight forty eight, except for those two. Uh, those two Georgia elections, yep. um, uh, well, with Alaska um, and North, North Carolina yeah. probably going for Trump. Yeah. Um, so yeah, forty-eight to fifty with two elections still to to mm. fight in January, and it, I mean everyone is going to be throwing everything at mm. that. And Dems yep. obviously have a greater uh, motivation because yes. it gives Democrats the ability to do stuff, whereas Republicans they're not in control. So the best they can do is um, vote to make sure that McConnell can kind of stifle some of Biden's cabinet picks and things like that, which isn't yes. quite as exciting no, as I was say, to trying be, to get yes, your people absolutely. in. Absolutely, yes. yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm confident and, well, I'm optimistic about And that. also um, Trump may again. have so acted out by then that actually he does lose, he does begin to lose some of the vote. Yeah, yeah. And the two people who are up in Georgia uh, for the Republicans, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, mm. are, I mean, literally criminals. I mean, they're they're awful, God. awful people. David Perdue uh, was so badly beaten in the last debate by John Ossoff that he cancelled the next debate because he just didn't want to do it again. So they they should be reasonably easy candidates reasonably to beat. Easy. Um, 
you know, comparatively speaking. But yeah, uh, there's there's everything to play for still. And yes. it, and there was a period where it didn't look like that was necessarily going to be the case. True. And the and the Purdue Ossoff race in uh, um in Georgia it, mm. it creeped so close mm. to Purdue going down under fifty mm. percent while the the total vote counted was going up to ninety eight ninety nine percent and mm. it it got there. So mm. yes, that's great. What else um, do you want to talk about? <laughs> Well, just the, I mean, the the celebrations, because one of the things that I thought after Biden was announced as the winner was, isn't it a shame that because Trump so badly fucked up the response yeah. to COVID yeah. that people can't have the, the huge parties that they deserve? Because everyone's kind of been waiting like to celebrate. Pretty much and yeah, celebrating. they did. Yes. They went outside, they put their masks yeah. on, they, they distanced a little bit and they had huge parties. Mm. And it's, I mean... The kind of thing you see when a dictator has been deposed, not yes. usually the kind of thing you see when someone's won an election. Yeah, there's the, so, the, the sense of relief was just palpable. Yeah, I had a cry. Absolutely. I don't know about you. <laughs> absolutely. And when Biden and, and Kamala Harris gave their victory yes. speech, it was just, it was so great to see people talking in complete sentences, absolutely. not boasting about themselves. And also just, just the diversity, you know, the diversity yeah. in the crowd, the diversity of those on stage. That's so important and it was very moving and it's such a contrast to what's, you know, it's just been a bunch of old white guys making, making, you know, legislating on behalf of a population they don't represent. I mean, it's just yeah. been atrocious. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge relief. Mm. A weight feels like it's been lifted off everyone and, and yeah. What I think was very telling and very noticeable was the language around uh, unification and the language around, I've, I've well, Biden's most powerful statement for me was around the fact that disagreement is a choice and agreement is a choice. And he was just um, really emphasizing how the Republicans could choose now to walk, you know, to walk across the aisle and actually to work with him on, on, on areas that are of common cause and common interest to the American people. Yeah. Um, and they can they can choose to actually work with rather than against, uh, and yeah, I just think absolutely. that's a really important message. And I really hope the American people hear that message. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's kind of it's inspiring and and much more inspiring than basically anything Trump has said yeah, for, for four years. And yeah. and seeing Kamala up there as a kind of the first uh, first female vice president, mm. uh, first woman of color, mm. um, it's it's just amazing. And um, yeah. Very exciting. And the the final thing that I want to talk about is the way that the the Trump administration has has kind of come is coming to an end in such a fitting way by Trump announcing on Twitter that his lawyers were gonna have a press conference at the uh four seasons in Philadelphia. That was and hilarious. Then, and then because someone messed something up somewhere having to delete that tweet and announcing that the press conference would instead be at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping, <laughs> <laughs> also in Philadelphia. And Giuliani and his friends pitched up in the parking lot behind a, a, a gardening company. That was so hilarious. Oh, God, it was amazing. <laughs> and And it's like between a crematorium and an adult bookstore <laughs> and just this awful area... Um, when they thought they were going to be at the at this hotel, yeah, and when it's, they panned out, oh, it was also yeah. run down and sort of scrappy, and there was hardly it, anyone there either. It's so fitting. Yeah. It's such an amazingly perfect way for it all to end. But I have to say, the overarching perfect way for it all to end, I think, is Trump's greatest nightmare, and that is that he will become an irrelevance. Yeah. Yeah, and he's already said that. Yeah. Um, that or he said to to people around him that they're going to have to take him out kicking and screaming. To which I say, "Great, let's Go watch that." It. Yeah, <laughs> bring it on. And finally, some things we really don't have time to talk about. Sometimes it's nice when people just say what they mean, and it's even nicer when they do it accidentally while also committing a false dilemma fallacy. Conservative activist Candace Owens, you know, the one who said Hitler's problem was that he was a globalist, appeared on Tucker Carlson's show the other day. You remember Tucker? He's the one who, thanks to a recent court case, you are required by law not to take seriously. Anyway, 
Candice said this. You are either on the side of mob rule or you are on the side of law and order. And I am on the side of mob rule. Tomorrow I will be casting my ballot for Donald J. Trump. Amen. Nicely put. Nice to know where she stands and that Tucker backs her up. Just to confirm that numbers can be apolitical or not, Stanford University economists concluded that Trump rallies might have caused 30,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and up to 700 deaths. They worked this out by comparing the number of COVID cases in surrounding areas that did hold rallies to demographically similar areas that didn't. Subsequently, and according to the New York Times, the findings from 18 events produced increases in confirmed cases of more than 250 per 100,000 residents. Extrapolating that to 18 rallies equates to 30,000 cases of COVID at least. Turned numbers into politics, saying that the study was a politically driven model based on flawed assumptions and meant to shame Trump supporters. If only they'd said, had you considered taking psychometric confounders into account, lead author and chair of Stanford's economics department, B. Douglas Bernheim, may have listened instead of having to point out that this was motivated by a debate that is raging about the trade-off between the economic consequences of restrictions and the health consequences of transmission. And as an economist, I take that debate to be both important and appropriate. Sheesh. 30,000 people. Trump could have done with those being well enough to go to the polls in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia. It's really quite impressive that Trump has done so well in the election, especially given his repeated efforts to kill his supporters. Yes, he got a few of them with rallies, and who knows how many died because he convinced them masks were a communist plot. One man died from drinking aquarium cleaner because the ingredients included the word chloroquine, and the suggestion to inject bleach must have taken out a few. In the dying days of his campaign, though, Trump tried a new tactic, hypothermia, mixed with good old-fashioned neglect. After his rally in Omaha, Nebraska last week, Trump flew away in Air Force One, and his supporters stood for hours in the freezing cold, waiting for the shuttle buses back to their cars three miles away. For some reason, despite the fact that it took 10 hours to ferry the 25,000-strong crowd to the rally from the car park, nobody had really thought about what to do afterwards or that people might not want to wait 10 more hours to get back to their Ford pickups or whatever Nebraskan Trump supporters drive. 30 people received medical attention and 7 went to hospital, and when thousands of rally-goers decided to walk back instead, they clogged up the roads, causing even more delays and disruption. Never one to learn from a disaster, the exact same thing happened again after his rallies in Pennsylvania and Georgia at the weekend. Well, maybe the deal is that it really doesn't matter what you say or how you behave. As long as you're a Republican, you can achieve high office. Worked for El Naranja, and it appears that whilst you may not believe in Republican rallies spreading COVID, you can still catch it and die like David Andal did. And even then, you can still get voted in. Andal, having beaten the GOP incumbent in the June primary, is now expected to win one of two state house seats from among the four candidates in the race for North Dakota's 8th district, despite being dead. Andal's death in October had prompted questions about what would happen were he to win the election in November. Now he has, Republicans will simply replace him with another one, apparently. Winning a seat posthumously, though not as unique as it may appear, Dennis Hoff, the Nevada brothel owner and self-proclaimed pimp, the Trump from Pahrump, won a race for the state legislature in the 2018 midterm elections about three weeks after he died, is something not even Kevin Phillips-Bong, slightly silly party, dreamed of achieving. If there were awards for shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted, entries would probably only be accepted if they missed the official deadline. A strong contender for this year's top prize would be Deborah Burks, the scarf-clad coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, who issued a stern warning in an internal memo that, among other things, large campaign events should be avoided. The memo, which she distributed on November fucking 2nd, directly contradicts Trump's claims that we're rounding the turn Instead, warning that the US is entering the most deadly phase of the pandemic and that much more aggressive action is needed by the administration. Lest Trump thinks that means he should threaten the virus with the size of his button, she clarified the absolute necessity of asking the American people to wear masks, physically distance and avoid gatherings. Yeah, maybe if you'd said that back in March instead of sycophantically praising Trump's attention to the scientific literature. But I don't see it making a difference now. If anything, Trump is probably going to spend his lame duck period making sure everything is as fucked as possible before Biden takes over. You know, even more than he has been up to now. Right then, Nonsense has it that the deep state is in control of everything. Trump is the god-king messiah sent to sort it all out. Don't be a sheeple. Do your own research. Oh, and don't mention the arrests that haven't happened yet. Q moves in mysterious ways his batshittery to perform. 
Anyway, a couple of Cuba-leaving Republicans are now in office. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in 2017 said, there's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan-worshipping paedophiles out, and I think we have the president to do it, won a House seat in Georgia. And Lauren Boebert, a House seat in Colorado. This is where the Moebus strip of mind-bendiness turns in on itself and probably causes a rupture in the space-time continuum. Two conspiracy theorists join the conspiracy that prominent Democrats are the source of deep-rooted corruption and criminal activity. And yet, and yet, insert expostulation about voter suppression here. It has truly come to pass. Online beings from the darkest corners of what used to be dark web forums have moved IRL into real life. I reckon a job as Republican Party press secretary beckons for both of them, as only they will have the naivety and convincing mental gymnastics to keep Trump's downfall, subsequent arrest and excommunication in canon. Where's Picard to battle with Q when you need him? Make it so. I bet you think we're a partisan podcast that only ever points out Republicans' mistakes. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. And to prove it, here's a story out of Oregon that has nothing to do with Trump. It seems someone in the Oregon Health Authority thought it was a good idea to combine their regular COVID update video with some public information about celebrating Halloween safely. And since they're talking about Halloween, why not make it fun by dressing one of the doctors up as a clown and the other as Totoro? Which is how Dr. Claire Poche ended up in full clown makeup reporting three new COVID deaths, which took the state's total to 608. I'll link the video in the show notes because it is seriously fucking amazing and simultaneously horrifying. If you think Curb Your Enthusiasm is cringeworthy, you ain't seen nothing yet. This week in Britpol, I am speaking to you from the confines of the vehemently denied existence of, yet inevitably forecast, Lockdown 2.0. Last Friday, number 10 leaked, possibly in a bottle thrown overboard with a help me, I'm being held captive by a personal advisor with dodgy eyesight etched into the glass, that we were all going into lockdown again. After months of arguing with scientists and local government leaders and Keir Starmer that it was ridiculous, unnecessary and dangerous, no, 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 not till the last breath of my body will I let that happen again, I tell you, Oh, all right, then yes, it happened. So we waited for a 4pm press conference at 5.30 that would start at 6.45, where Boris immediately failed to apologise for being two and three quarter hours and four months late, and just as quickly handed over to the scientists, who showed us lots of graphs that equally failed to explain where the test, track and trace system was, why studies show that the Eat Out to Help Out campaign contributed substantially to the acceleration of the second wave, why Keir Starmer and the Labour Party had been right all along, and how comes it Boris is actually still in a job. After seven months of countless sloganeering adjustments, he grudgingly revived Stay Home, Protect the NHS and Save Lives before being cut off. We locked down on Thursday the 5th of November, possibly to avoid a successful rerun of Guy Fawkes' exploits. But not before students defied guidance and Barnard castled it home to avoid being cooped up in halls of residence over Christmas for the bargain price of £9,000 a year. Stay face everyone, eat in, protect and wash a mask and avoid shielding your sixes. See you on the R number of December. So that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest presenter, Rachel, and you can find the show notes at fallaciousTrump.com. And if you hear Trump say something stupid and want to ask if it's a fallacy, our contact details are on the contact page. If you think we've used a fallacy ourselves, let us know. And if you've had a good time, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash ftrump. Just like our newest patron, Ross Simpson, our straw man level patrons, Kaz Tui, Schmutz, Mark Reiki and Amber R. Buchanan and true Scotsman level top patron Lauren. Thank you so much everyone we really appreciate your support You can connect with those awesome people as well as us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Fallacious Trump. All music is by the Outbursts and was used with permission so until the next time on Fallacious Trump we'll leave the very last word to the Donald. That's right go home to mommy. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>